This week we have three chapters to get through. So hopefully if I got through 12 in one week, I could probably get through three in one week maybe. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. There's more to talk about in these chapters. All right. Any uh, prayer requests or updates this morning? I'm having to run PowerPoint off of my phone this morning. Isn't that amazing? But anyways, um, I've never done that, so I, I do hope that it uh, <laughs> works okay. Uh, we, uh, this is just an anecdotal uh, side story means nothing, but we woke up and we were getting ready, and about 10 minutes before we were leaving, all of a sudden the whole, all the electricity in our house went out. So I didn't have time to get it on my iPad, and I get in here, and it's not downloading here. So my electronic equipment is just not working this morning for some reason. So anyways. All right, well, I don't see any other hands raised or any, I haven't heard any prayer requests. Let's just go ahead and start with a word of prayer. I w- let, me, let me do say this, and I'm going to try to um, let everybody know during worship as well. I've gotten, of course, several emails about uh, our brethren over in Ukraine. I don't know if y'all have watched the news, obviously. Um, you all are, are probably staying posted on what all is occurring over in that, that country. Um, obviously, we have a lot of brethren in several areas over there that, that I'm personally familiar with, but that, of course, we have supported and we work with as well. We have our full-time missionary that we uh, support over there, Ivan Skaliba. Ivan is in the western part of the country, so he's not near Kiev where all that was going down. So if y'all have questions about whether he's in that area, he's not. Um, there are Christians in that area, though, and uh, we also have a lot of good Christians and several congregations over in the eastern part of the country, which is more pro-Russia, which is more on that side of uh, the current issues. And uh, so there are obviously some divisions that are going on uh, politically there. They are not impacting the church, as we know, directly in any way. But obviously our brethren have asked for our prayers for their country and uh, for that. So I want to remember them in our prayers. And, and I will do my best to keep you all posted if I hear any news about our brethren over there. Um, so you can know that for sure as well. But please keep them in your prayers. Uh, it is not over with. And, uh, of course, you all saw Timoshenko was released from prison. She's more of a, a European sympathizer if you get into politics of Ukraine. And so she obviously is um, rallying the protesters and uh, trying to get Yanukovych um, to resign and get kind of move forward with the, the more of a pro-European uh, government. That's, that would be great for us, to be honest with you, with regard to the openness and the, the willingness to uh, work with uh, and allow you know, freedom of religion, those kind of things. Um, obviously, if you align yourself with Russia the way Vladimir Putin and, and the other leaders of Russia, they're wanting to kind of go back to the old Soviet Union mindset, which is not a good thing. Um, but keep them in your prayers. And I will do my best to, uh, to pass along any news and information uh, regarding them. There's nothing else. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sister McKee said that they've heard from David and Galena and that there are, they, they, they have tra- uh, passed along some news that, you know, obviously there's some stirrings in the Nikolaev area and region down there, um, but that Galena's family is okay. They're fine over there right now. Yes. Melissa. Okay. All right. Yes. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Brenda and Joe, what? 
They're both at home? Okay. Joe and Brenda Wright are, are sick at home, so remember them. All right, well, let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. If you would, please bow with me. God, we are so thankful for the day you've given us. And God, we're thankful for another day we can gather together as a family here at Dalreda and we can open up your word. And Lord, please be with us as we conclude our study today on the book of Joshua. Lord, may we have uh, studied and taken some of the lessons to heart from this book to encourage us to be more courageous and more faithful in our dedication and obedience to you. God, we are thankful for the avenue of prayer that we can come to you and express to you our wants and our wishes and our desires and and our concerns. And Lord, we know that you're already aware of all of them, but it's great for us to be able to tell you what things mean to us and how much we care for others. And Lord, we ask you to be with those that are struggling with sickness or or, uh, or dealing with health issues. We ask you to be with uh, Melissa's... uh, family member, uh, Amy Smith, we ask you to be with the rights as they're at home sick today. And Lord, we ask you just to please uh, be with them, be with uh, them as they heal, be with their bodies and help them to be strong enough to overcome the illnesses they have and be with the doctors that tend to them and, and encourage them and lift them up. Lord, we ask that you be with um, our brethren in Ukraine and that country in general, Your uh, God, that that you be with them and and keep them safe, that you uh, help them to, uh, to seek the right paths. Lord, be with that country as well as all other countries to try and do what's best in your sight and your eyes so that we can remain faithful and dedicated to you. And God, we ask you to be with our Christian brethren that are over there, especially at this time. And Lord, please keep them safe. May they keep a cool head on their shoulders as they both respect the government, but, but also try to Stand up for the right to be able to worship you and honor you as you require. And Lord, may no harm come to them. And, and Lord, we ask that you just bring calmness to that country so that they will not have all the unrest that they do and all the death and all the, the, the problems and the disasters that they are dealing with. And God, we ask you to please just be with all of us as we live our daily lives. Help us to do the things that you would be proud of and help us to live a life that would be acceptable and holy to you. And God, we thank you most of all for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, and it's through his name we pray. Amen. As I said before we began, uh, before we had our word of prayer, last week we went through about 12 chapters, and of course we surveyed a good amount and a good portion of those chapters, especially as you talk about the apportionment of the land of Canaan as the, the children of Israel finally get through conquering the land. They may not have expelled everyone in that land just yet, and we'll see that as as the story continues to unfold in the, the rest of this book, and as you go on, and if you were to read on in the Judges, you see that as well. And you see that uh, the children of Israel, of course, had their apportionments. And then we're really getting down to chapter 22. If you remember real quickly, let's look at the last few verses of chapter 21. That's where we ended our class last week. But it really kind of gives a good bookend with respect to the fighting and with respect to the warring and the conquering that Joshua and the people of Israel had to go through. And ultimately, it speaks volumes with respect to what God came through with them. And in fact, God, it says there, fulfilled all of his promises. Look real quickly there in verse uh, chapter 21, verses 44 and 45. It says, The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and no one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. And verse 45, I think it's a good verse if you want to circle it, if you want to underline it with respect to 
what God will do for us. I don't know if any of you all keep a, a running tally of the fulfillment of promises in the Scriptures, but there's a lot of great verses talking about God's promises being fulfilled. And I think this is one of them. In verse 45 it says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And I think as you look at that statement there in verse 45, it really gives you the precursor, the, the, the prologue, so to speak, for the final three chapters of this book. Uh, now, obviously, the story isn't totally concluded at the end of this book because the story of Israel continues to unfold throughout the Old Testament. But this segment, this portion, this part of Israel's uh, history is about to really come to an end as you look and, and you look at chapters 22, 23, and 24 of Joshua because you kind of see the passing on, so to speak, of the torch from one leader to another when Joshua took over for Moses, right? At the end of Deuteronomy, of course, you see the fact that Joshua uh, was the one uh, uh, appointed as being the, the successor to Moses, and he, in fact, took that torch from Moses after Moses died on the mountain uh, before uh, being able to go into Canaan's land. And, of course, Joshua, then we read of him taking up the banner of the leadership of Israel, going forth and leading the people of Israel throughout the book of Joshua. And then here, as we get to the latter part of the book, we see really the end of Joshua's life. And I think what you see more than anything here as you go on and, and as you think here of, of uh, the courageousness that you see in the book of Joshua, you see the courage here to remain faithful in the last three chapters of this book. And it's not just really on Joshua's part, as we'll see in chapter 22, but it's really on all of Israel's part and the actions that they have to remain faithful to the calling which God had to them going all the way back to the calling from Egypt. All the way back from when they first left Pharaoh's grip there in Egypt land under the, um, the terrible, deplorable conditions they had there as being slaves to uh, Pharaoh and all the Egyptians. Uh, all the way into the present time when they've gone through these struggles, they've gone through battles, they've gone through deaths, they've gone through births, uh, they've gone through wanderings for 40 years. Some of them have experienced every bit of that. Keep that in mind. Every bit of that some of them have experienced. You remember those that were still young in the wilderness, uh, they were not condemned and they were still able to go forward. So you just, in your mind, think about those who, who actually saw it from almost the beginning and have gone through here to the end and some like Joshua who were young, you know, who experienced the, the, the spying in the land, who experienced the wandering in the wilderness. Here we see it, almost the end. Uh, they had, had gone to that long tunnel, seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and had finally reached that light of the promised land. And finally, it's kind of like, what next? And what you see in these last three chapters is uh, an ex exhortation, a, an encouragement, a, a, a almost a, a challenge. For the people to remain faithful, to, to remain having that courage uh, with God. And that's what you see here in these uh, verses and in this chapter with respect to Israel. Now what I want to do first is look uh, chapter 22, then we're going to look at 23 and 24 together this morning. But chapter 22, I, I've kind of entitled this section, uh, this part of the scripture, Courage While Returning. And if you see here a broad overview of looking at what chapter 22 talks about, it's the fact that the two and a half tribes that have land that's on the other side of the Jordan, which would be the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half tribe of Manasseh, that's the two and a half tribes. If you ever hear two and a half tribes, it's used sometimes 
uh, in the scriptures. It's also used in some uh, literature that discusses this. But the two and a half tribes that had, had land that had already been given to them on the eastern side of the Jordan River were going to return back home. And that's what you see in cha- as chapter 22 unfolds. Of course, chapter 21 talks about, hey, we all have rest. We have finality, so to speak, with regard to conquering these lands and these areas. They haven't necessarily conquered and, and expelled all of the people from the lands yet, but they have conquered and they have literally taken over these lands and they are the ones that are seen as being in control and having possession of them. So in chapter 22, you see Joshua here summoning the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to him. And he talks to them there in verse 2, and he says, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, and have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers... As he spoke to them, now therefore turn and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, while Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. So what you see first here is, is this, the two and a half tribes go forward here. As they return back to their, hand, their, their country, their possession that they had been given, you see that uh, they go forth being blessed and being called faithful. Now, a little bit of a backstory and look back uh, as we reflect back upon the two and a half tribes. If you'll remember back, and we alluded to this, I think, previously in our studies, but the two and a half tribes, of course, were given their land and their allotment before Israel ever crossed the Jordan River. In fact, they were given their land and their promise, their inheritance, so to speak, by Moses. Way back in Numbers and before uh, Moses ever perished and died. And you look there, the two and a half tribes, as, as they went forward, as they uh, dealt with what had been given to them, uh, their, their country, their land, their inheritance had been given to them, I believe, over in about Numbers uh, chapter 32, around that time period where uh, the two and a half tribes had requested the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, literally and technically that would not be Canaan, by the way. Canaan's land is really confined west of the Jordan River. So they actually requested land that was outside of the, the intended promised land. But they did so, of course, because they desired to stay over there. They saw it as being a, a land that was uh, ripe for their inheritance. They saw it as something that was desirable for them and their people. And that's what they had done. And Moses granted that. And they had gone forward, of course, Uh, along with the people of Israel, why did they go on forth? Well, Moses said, if I'm going to give you this land, I'll give it to you, and this will be your allotment, this will be your inheritance. However, you still must go with your brothers and go and fulfill their inheritance. Go forth with them to conquer and take over the land which God has promised to Israel. And so they were required to go on across the Jordan River. And that's a little bit of a flashback as we talked about the crossing of the Jordan River. In fact, as you go back to those lessons that we went and talked about before, the crossing of the Jordan River, the the two and a half tribes literally took up somewhat of a leadership position as they crossed the Jordan River. They really led the charge as they went forward going from 
um, shed them across the Jordan River going on over into their, uh, their, really their main outpost before Jericho there at Gilgal, and they set up camp. And so the Reubenites, the Gadites, the, the half-tribe of Manasseh were seen as somewhat leaders of Israel, and they went forward. Even though they already had their inheritance, even though they already had their promise, they went forward because they were commanded by God through Moses to go on and go forward with their brothers to fight. And so they did so. And of course, Joshua here in chapter 22 commends them for their faithfulness. They encourages them because of what they have done. They have fulfilled the commandment of God to go forth and to, uh, to help the brothers conquer uh, the, the land of Israel. And so as, when that was done, when all was said and done over there across the, on the west side of the Jordan River, they were told to go back to their own homes. And that's what you see here. The tribes returned east of the Jordan to their territory. And as this unfolds, though, I like, it's very interesting to kind of see the events of chapter 22. Uh, and, and in your mind, you're going to have to start reflecting and remembering some of the things we haven't really talked about in this class, but hopefully you've garnered from your own personal study, either during the course of this class or in other classes previously. Starting in verse 10 there of chapter 22, you read an account of what the two and a half tribes had done. And in fact, as they've started journeying over to their land of promise, go back and across the, the, to the east side of the Jordan River, uh, and, and verse 10, it says that they stopped along the way. Uh, they built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. It goes on to chronicle and talk about the, the, the altar, and uh, later on in this, this whole dialogue here, and, but... Uh, and, and we'll see it as we kind of go through the rest of this chapter. But verses 10 and verse 11 talks about this huge altar being built. A little bit of a side note here. Scholars really aren't 100% sure and accurate where this altar may have been. Uh, more than likely, it would have actually been on the eastern side of the Jordan River, as a lot of, what a lot of uh, would argue. But others would say that the text really kind of goes to the point, the fact that uh, it's actually in the land of Canaan, so therefore it would need to be on the west bank of the Jordan River. But regardless, it was something that would have been seen by the two and a half tribes when they were on their land. That's what it boils down to. And the whole reasoning behind them building this altar, so to speak, and if you look on the screen, of course, in my PowerPoint, I have altar in parentheses or in quotation marks because really it wasn't an altar. It was an altar, but it wasn't an altar. And you think, well, what are you talking about, John? Well, when you deal with what an altar is, of course, an altar is something that was built in a certain way, in a certain manner in the Old Testament, for them to be able to, to do sacrifice upon. That was really what an altar's purpose was behind it. Uh, the way it was built, you know, such as altars, the, the stones were not to be hewn. They were not to be broken. They were not to be cut. And so the stones that were used were to be, um, you know, unified. And they were supposed to, there's certain things, we can go back in the Old Testament. I don't really don't want to get into it all, but more than likely... The, the, the way this was constructed was just like the altar that would have been to the Lord uh, that was currently at Shiloh is where it would have been uh, because that's where the tabernacle was. Uh, so it would have been an altar in very much similar appearance, but function is what is different in this case. And that's why I say it's not really an altar because as you go on and see in chapter 22, the, the, the two and a half tribes did not intend to use this for some type of sacrifice. And in fact, what they wanted this to be is more of a monument, a memorial altar. Something that was to be seen and to be shown as a reminder to all the people that the two and a half tribes, although they were on the eastern side of the Jordan River, were still part of the other tribes on the western side of the Jordan River. 
You know, as they were marching back home and going back to the land that they had been promised, it probably crossed their mind that here we have fought, we have bled, we have lived, we have died with these other tribes, our brethren. And here we are about to be separated by this river, this, this mighty Jordan River to them. And we don't ever want the perception to be that we are divided from our brethren. And that's what you see as chapter 22 unfolds. Their intention is pure. Uh, their purpose, I believe, is righteous. And in fact, it is a fulfillment of their duties in Deuteronomy chapter 4 of teaching their children of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live. Because what they wanted, the two and a half tribes wanted this monument to be built so that when they would look at it, they would be reminded that they are Israel. They are one and the same as the the Israelites across the Jordan River that they went through these same things together, that they are to be holy and acceptable unto God. And in fact, that whenever those that are across the river from them ever wonder whether or not these people are faithful to God, they'll look at this altar, this monument, so to speak, and they will remember in their mind that these men fought with us just as our own forefathers did. And they won't think that there's any division even though there's a river in between. Now, that's the intention of this altar, this memorial, monument, whatever word you want to use. Uh, But it was structured, it was built much like the altars would have been. And, of course, that's what you see in verse 11, which started causing all the alarm to Israel. And uh, those that were the remaining tribes in verse 11 had heard what uh, the two and a half tribes had built and what they had done. In verse 11, you see their response, of course, here. And and they says, Behold, the, the two and a half tribes have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan. In the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel, again, that's an indication, more than likely, the location was not on the eastern bank, but really on the western bank of the Jordan River, that they had built it before they crossed back over. And, of course, you see the concern that they would have had there, uh, not just the, uh, the building of it, but the concern about the impurity. In verses 12 through 20, you see uh, the description of what the other uh, children of Israel had done. They were so concerned with this, that they ended up sending Phinehas, who's the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one chief for each of the father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. And from each one of them uh, was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel, verse 14. They came to the two and a half tribes there in verse 15, and they confronted them. They spoke with them, saying, verse 16, What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is not the iniquity of pure enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the whole congregation of the Lord, that you may, must turn this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, cross into the land of the possession of the Lord. Where, is the, where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves beside the altar of the Lord our God. Verse 20, I love this. You know, we like to use the lessons from our past, right? Look what they did, verse 20. Did not Achan, (laughs) did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban and wrath fall into the whole congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. They were truly fearful 
that the two and a half tribes were going to bring damnation back upon the children of Israel because they thought that this altar was an altar that was to be in direct competition with the altar to God. That was in Shiloh at that point in time. They were fearful that the two and a half tribes were about to bring and rain down on, on them condemnation, another plague. You see the allusion there in verse 17 of Peor. And of course, in, uh, in Peor, in Numbers chapter 25, the first five verses there, the children of Israel acted unfaithfully to God. Imagine that in Numbers 25. And what did they do? They started worshiping uh, the, the, the Baals. There in the location there of Peor. So that as the, the, the people talk about the iniquity of Peor, it is an allusion again back to the, the bad choices they had made in their past to be unfaithful to God. And in fact, the damnation of God raining down upon them there in Peor. And there's a plague that, that wiped out a ton of Israelites there because they followed after the Moabites' form of worshiping Baal. And then you see, of course, their concern because they understood really firsthand Achan. They were there. They saw what happened to Achan. They knew Achan's boneheaded move in violating God's commandment, bringing in those violating um, pieces from Jericho into the, his own tent, trying to deceive God because of his, his, um, his own, I would say lust, but we talked about using that word there, but his own desire, his covetousness that he had there for those items that were under the ban. And of course, the the... the the result for Achan, as we well know from our lessons and discussions from that chapter in Joshua, is that not only Achan suffered, but Achan and his whole family suffered. They were stoned and then they were burned. Israel said, hey, we don't want to go through this again. Cleanse yourself. Two and a half tribes don't bring this upon us. We're still together. We're all children of Israel. You cannot worship falsely. By building another altar in direct competition the way God has said to worship, destroy it, please turn. And I love the other aspect that you see here. Not only were they worried about their impurity, they were worried that their brethren were being engulfed because of the impurity in their land that they had been given. And if you look, I love the response here. If the land of your possession, verse 19, is unclean, then cross into the land of possession of the Lord. That would have been Canaan, by the way. If the land on the east side of the Jordan River is so impure, if, if it is so corrupt, if it is unclean, and that unclean word, by the way, is a pretty heavy word when it comes to the Israelites, right? They know what unclean meant. If it is so unclean across on the eastern side of the Jordan, come back to the western side. We will give you land. We will take care of you. Don't force yourself to stay among the impure and the unclean. And so you see the, the, the mindset of Israel there, the concern that they had over the two and a half tribes. It wasn't just a self-concern. Now, there was a selfish concern. for the, They didn't want to be punished themselves, right? Uh, I mean, they didn't want to go through that again. They had been there, done that. I don't want, to, I don't want that T-shirt, okay? I don't want it. I don't want to be there anymore. So, so cleanse yourself so we don't get punished, but also we're worried about you. Cleanse yourselves and get out of that impurity if you can. And if it's because you're surrounded on every side by these people and that's why you're doing what you're doing, get out of that situation. Imagine the parallels that we could get into today if we had time about how this really applies or could apply to us in our Christian lives. On how we should go and confront those who we see engulfed in sin. 
That we are, when we are worried about those who are concerned about impurity, when we are concerned about those who are around us, that we actually go to them and implore them to get themselves out of that situation. Not just so that we will all be punished, because we all could be punished. By the way, just think about 1 Corinthians, as Paul talked to the Corinthian brethren there. He talked about the fact that, that they had accepted and were still embracing in fellowship a man who had his father's wife. And told them they needed to expel that sin from amongst themselves. Why? The lampstand of Corinth was really in jeopardy there. And if that church did not cleanse the impurity from among them, they would deal with the punishment of God for that entire church's response to sin amongst themselves. Kind of reminds me of Israel here. They were scared to death. Even though they were wrong and mistaken as it was later ferreted out and as they discussed it with the two and a half tribes, they realized that that's not what was going on. But the concern for the impurity here is so amazing to me, for especially the mindset of Israel, especially as you go through the minor and major prophets later on, you see a definite difference in mindset from Israel and Judah at that point in time. But the mindset here is we're concerned about the impurity among us. We want to take care of that. We want to resolve it. We want to make sure we're in right standing with God. Let's take care of that impurity. How much does that speak to us? It does. And there's a lot of New Testament verses we can get into. Unfortunately, I don't have time to do it today. Explore it yourselves. But I think it's a great allusion to that. And also to the fact that there's an imploring there from the children of Israel that, hey, if you are in the midst of people who are unclean, please get out of that. Come with me. Come over here. We'll take care of you. Get out of whatever you're doing if it's compromising your faith and your obedience and your dedication to God. Think about that mindset as a Christian as well and how we should be imploring in any way possible to help our brethren to get out of those situations that are sinful, that are against God, that, 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 that hinder our obedience and faithful dedication to Him and to come back on this side of the river. That we should all be reaching out and, and reaching down to those who may need our help. It's not just a, an aspect of uh, impurity, but also the concern for future generations that you see in verses 21 through 29. Um, you see really as this uh, chronicles and goes through, it's not just a concern of Israel. Really, this is a concern of the two and a half tribes. The reason they built this, as I've already alluded to you, is that they wanted a testament for future generations so that if any word rise up and say, hey, you know, uh, they, uh, the Two and a half tribes have nothing to do with Israel because they have this, this border. They're not a part of them anymore. If the generations following that would ever question the faithfulness or dedication of the two and a half tribes, this, this altar, uh, this monument would be a witness, so to speak, as it says in verse 27, between uh, the generations, between the two and a half tribes and the remaining ten tribes of Israel. Uh, between our generations after us, it says in verse 27, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, and with our peace offerings, so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. There was a concern by the two and a half tribes that they wanted to preserve their subsequent generation's faithful dedication to God. That's why they built this altar. That's why they wanted to, to try and, and show this monstrosity to all their children to remind them of who they are and where they've been and what they're supposed to do. Kind of reminds me if you think about like all the monuments we know in Washington, D.C. You know, what are those monuments really set apart to do? Well, they're set apart and dedicated for different reasons, some of them. But for the most part, what they are is they're reminders to us 
of times past and people past and things that had passed so that we will remember those lessons, we will remember those words of wisdom, we will remember those leaders and what they stood for and what they did for us so that we will not forget them in subsequent generations. Unfortunately, that reminders don't always stick. We don't always remember and, and learn from our historical issues and problems. But that's what they're set apart for. That's exactly what the two and a half tribes wanted. They wanted something set apart for them so that they would be able to um, um, not only be concerned about them, but also to be a witness uh, to future generations. And then finally, what you see here at the end of the book, of course, there's a reconciliation uh, through 30, verses 30 through 34. Phinehas the priest, the son of Eleazar, had come through and talked with them, and they had tried to f- figure out and realize what exactly uh, this was for. When he found out what it was, of course, in verse 30, uh, they saw that. It, they heard what they had said. All the heads of the families of Israel with them heard the words which the two and a half tribes had said. In verse 30, it says, and it pleased them. Pleased them. They were happy to hear that, that the two and a half tribes had not fallen off the uh, wagon of dedication, the, uh, the boat of faithfulness. They were glad they were still there with them with the remaining tribes of Israel, fighting and standing with God. They were glad to know that um, uh, this this altar, so to speak, was not an altar that was to compete with God, but instead it was something to supplement and to glorify and to remind the people of Israel as to who they were. It ultimately became, as verse 34 says, uh, the altar became known as witness. That's kind of the name of the altar, according to Phinehas here. It says, for, they said... It's a witness between us that the Lord is God. That's really kind of a great altar if you think about it. You know, a great reminder for those people. And what it says, and, and if you start thinking about the big picture here, think about how far Israel has come. Think about it. Throughout all these generations, you have generations before who complained, who grumbled, who whined because they didn't think God was caring for them, right? You just think from the the moment almost of leaving Egypt, they started complaining against God. After all the years of saying, God, save us, get us out of this bondage, take us from this slavery, when God finally brought them out of slavery and bondage, instead of being thankful, instead of being loving, they whined, they complained, they groaned. They weren't happy when God sent manna. They wanted meat instead. So then they weren't happy when God sent both manna and quail. It just was never satisfying to them. And then here, fast forward, hit the fast forward button there on this big story of Israel. And what you see here in Joshua chapter 22 is the faithful bookend of the people completing their dedication to God, realizing that what is important because they want their own tribes to stay faithful. And it's not God disciplining the other tribes. It's the tribes disciplining themselves. And that really brings about true maturity and courage to stand up for what's right. The courage to remain faithful here on the part of Israel is seen in their maturity and going to their brethren. Instead of God having to come down and say, hey, take care of this, Joshua. It's the leaders of all the tribes being led by the high priest of Israel, being concerned for the faithfulness and the dedication of the two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan River. And they went to them because of their concern. 
Now, ultimately, their concern was for naught. But the fact that they were concerned speaks volumes about the heart, the mind, and the faithfulness of the children of Israel. You go on to see here, and we've got only a few minutes, and I, this is one of my favorite chapters in, in the books, as we go on to see here. And, and chapters 23 and chapters 24 is the courage in saying farewell. And I'm going to go ahead and put all this up here because I'm going to zoom through a lot of it here as we look at it. But chapter 23 and chapter 24 really is the, the, the end of Joshua's life, as you see here. It's really the, 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 the period on the sentence of, uh, of Joshua's life. And the fact that he ends his life, I think, on such a high note is so much worthy of praise. And in chapters 23 through 24, you see several different points that I believe show us the courage that Joshua had in remaining faithful and staying faithful while he's saying farewell to his people. In chapter 23 there, in the first part of uh, chapter 23, you see here a reminder from Joshua here from chapter 1 all the way through, I mean, verse 1 through verse 11 here. Joshua reminding the people of Israel to keep the Lord's commandments. He's saying, keep what's first, first in your life. Realize that and through all the wanderings, through all the trials, through all the conflicts and the battles that we've gone through here as we've gone to Canaan's land, people, what we have learned more than anything is to love the Lord your God. And keep his commandments because he is faithful to us. And so what you see here in chapter 23 verses 1 through 11 is an exhortation, a reminder from Joshua for them to stay faithful. Verse 5, the Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. And you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. An encouragement here to the people of Israel to remain faithful, to know that God's going to be with them. It's almost a a shadow of the be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. The Lord's going to be with you each and every day. That Joshua starts out with there in chapter 1, hearing from God for him to remain faithful and courageous. Again, he echoes it here in his death. He echoes it here in the last part of his life. Be strong and courageous, Israel. Realize that if you stay true to God, he will stay true to you. Keep his commandments and all these people are going to be thrust out of the land from before you. It will be the promise which he's given to you. Verse 8, you are to cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. The Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. Take diligent heed, it says in verse 11, to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back, and here's a little foreshadowing, Verl, if we, I think we talked about it a little bit last week. If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you and whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. A warning, a reminder really from Joshua here. Keep true to the Lord in his commandments, in your dedication, in your obedience. Make sure you keep those things first and foremost in your mind. Cling to the Lord and not to the other nations around you. You also see here a warning. Do not cling, as I've already said here, to the other nations. Verses 8 through 16 uh, speaks of this warning. It's not just a a reminder 
But here, Joshua literally warns them and says, if you claim the other nations, you will go down with them. The blessing, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 13. You see, Joshua, of course, here as he gathers among all the people, all the leaders of Israel here, he reminds them of the incredible blessings that they received. He goes through somewhat of a summary of their history. And we don't have time to go into that this morning as we are already short on time as it is. But if you look at there, there's a summary of Israel's history that Joshua gives to them. Reminds them where they came from. Reminds them not only where they came from, but who has been with them all that time. And ultimately there, as you see down in verse 13, uh, you see here that Joshua conveys to them and reminds them in verse, well, let's just go to verse 11. Across the Jordan came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho followed against you. And you go on down to see in verse 12, Then I sent the, the hornet before you and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, not by your sword or by your bow. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built. And you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves, which you did not plant. Joshua here reminds the people that God, the Lord God of Israel, has blessed them incredibly, has given them places to live, given them things to eat, given them uh, land to possess that was not theirs. But in fact, it was an incredible blessing given by God. The challenge they see here is what I believe is, is really incredible and what I want to possibly we may end with this uh, this morning. Chapter 24, verses 14 through 24 really underscores the challenge that Joshua gives them before he dies. And all the reminders and, and all the, the giving of the blessings that they have been able to experience, and as you think about the warnings that are among them here, Joshua presents Israel with a challenge. And it's the same challenge, honestly, that faces us today. And I don't really need to get out thinking the application because it is so obvious uh, with regard to reading these passages of Scripture. But look at Joshua as he confronts the children of Israel after telling them of these incredible blessings that they've had, that they've been able to enjoy, that they didn't deserve here. Joshua says here in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you see the people's response in verse 16. The people who have gone through tragedy, the people who have gone through battle, the people who have even experienced slavery, people who have experienced... Um, being free from servitude. When they finally here get to this point in chapter 24 here, they answer and say unto Joshua, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, He is He who brought us and our fathers up of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples who midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua says, hey, verse 19, it's not going to be easy. You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
Then he will turn and do harm and consume you even after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua verse 22 says, you are witnesses against yourselves. Go on and read Judges, by the way. You're going to see how the witnesses come into play. But Joshua says, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And he says, and they they all said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with them that day, made for them a statute and an ordinance there in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone, set it up there up under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke against you, so that you do not deny your God. A witness to them that they will remain true to the God, the Lord God of Israel. Sadly, it doesn't remain the case. What I think speaks volumes as we hear, I got, I'm going to take a couple seconds, I know, a little bit over here with respect to this. But look at the, quickly the epilogue. Of this book, I, the, the course there's the, the death, of course, of Joshua, of Eleazar, and also the barrier of both of them, as well as jo, of Joseph. But look real quickly, Judges chapter two. I almost wish you could teach the book of Judges after the book of Joshua, because I think it's kind of neat to follow the history of the people. Right? It's one of those books where you start reading. I don't know if you ever do this when Doug preaches, which is nothing against Doug, but I start reading a passage of scripture. And I thought, man, that's so interesting. You know, it's kind of like one of those things you hadn't read in a while, you hadn't thought about. It. You keep reading, and you kind of just forget about the sermon. Um, I hope you don't do that, but maybe you do. I've done it before. I hope you're not doing that during class because I probably wouldn't be doing that if I was in your place in this class Um, because I'd start reading it and seeing the interesting aspects of all this history. And as an adult, I appreciate the history so much more now than I used to as a kid when they tried to stuff it down my throat in in high school. But look, epilogue real quick. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him, of course, verse 9. Verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And sadly, verse 10 there, middle of the verse... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And when you don't know what God's done for you, if you don't realize what God's done for you, if you don't accept what God's done for you, you cannot be faithful. And in fact, that's what we see with Israel. The days of Joshua, glories. He he led the children of Israel. He kept them faithful. And in fact, he did his job because he led the generation after him to maintain the faithfulness. There's a generation that failed, and that's what's so sad. But I think what we can garner from all of this lesson and from this quarter of study, at least I have, that courageousness equates to faithfulness when you have God on your side. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. The Lord is going to be with you Every step of your way. We saw that at the beginning of Joshua. And we see that, that with every step of Joshua's way, the Lord was with him. Why? 
because he was faithful, he was dedicated, and he was obedient. May we strive to do the same. Thank you all for your kind.